Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then, after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brother and sister. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Everyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets that what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Amen. Welcome to Grace. My name is R. Dallas Green, and um, our worship and youth pastors are away on a youth advance with 82 others. So um, if you operate with a mobile device, I want to invite you to go on to Grace Guest, and you can pull up James. But if you want to go old school with me, we're going to have some Bibles come around in just a minute. And, um, you know, it was just a joy to see 50-plus um, kids over at Waverly receive Bibles this week. Uh, just be able to put into their hands the Word of God, and we're working our way through the book of James. We said last week that uh, James, the author of James is, what's that? We said last week the author of James is, if you said Peter, like, I'd be in trouble, but the author of James is James. James. Very good. That's the book we're in, in James. <laughs> it was a circular letter written to the scattered Christians who were refugees being persecuted for their faith. And the first, first topic James undertakes is the topic of how do we deal with trials? He is saying that there will definitely be trials in the life of a believer, 100% guarantee that if you're a student, you're going to have trials. If you're an athlete, injuries, trials to deal with. If you're working somewhere, you're going to suffer trials in that place. Your family, trials will definitely come. So he's saying that trials will surely come in the life of a believer. There's, it's very certain that your life will have ups and downs, highs and lows, times when you're sick, times when you're well, seasons when you're broke, times when you're well off. James is sure that you're going to go through trials. What he's not sure about is whether we're going to have a good attitude, a joyful attitude in those trials. Because the natural response to trials is to grumble and complain, right? Now, there's plenty of things in life to complain about. But the opposite of complaining and grumbling 
is to face your trials with joy. To fight back with joy. To have an entirely different perspective on the trial that you're in right now. You see, joy is this confident attitude produced by the Holy Spirit working inside of us. That statement, it is well, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. No matter what's happening on the outside, it is well with my soul. But joy is a belief that my God is in control. He's working out His will. What allows you to have joy in every circumstance is to know that He is in charge of every circumstance. And He's going to turn it for His glory and for my good, ultimately my good. When we have little in life and have lost much, much like these first century Christians, Christ comes and reveals himself to us as more valuable than everything we've ever lost. When we have much and we're overflowing with abundance, Christ comes and shows us that he is superior to everything we hold in our hands. So in a trial, you'll always want to guard your heart that you don't become bitter. Know that you're gonna, your faith is going to become tested. In the test, God's making you stronger. He's cultivating perseverance. Right? He's seeking your faith to become mature. Now, we're going to need to ask God for wisdom in those trials, in faith, right? Believing. And God will supply the grace to go through the trial. Chapter 1, verse 12 of James says it like this. Blessed is the man, the woman, who perseveres under trial, who doesn't quit, who doesn't give up, who doesn't lose heart, who's always learning in the trial, right? Because when he has stood the test, when they have endured, he received the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So trials are guaranteed. Having joy, letting them develop perseverance in us, Helping us to mature in our faith, well, that's optional. That's a choice we have to make. But when we face trials, now we're to our notes, there's four strong temptations when our faith is being tested. Actually, there's lots and lots of temptations, but I've noted four of them. Let me talk about them to you. The first one is to become religious and believe that God is punishing me in this trial. The more religious people are, the more they say when they're suffering, going through a trial, first question is why? Why me? Why now? Why him? Why her? The second question is, what have I done wrong? They believe that they're suffering from a, a punishment, from a punishing God. I just want you to know that God doesn't punish his children. But somewhere in our religious past, we were taught that God is punishing us in our trials. God put the punishment onto his son. He has no need to punish us or for us to punish others. The nature of our God is good and loving. So when we're going through trials, we may often think that God has turned against us, that God has forgotten us, that God doesn't hear our cries that God doesn't see our pain. So we think if we're religious, I must do something good to get on God's good side since God is angry with me. God is punishing me. The question of a religious person is, 
What must I do to make this pain stop? Perhaps if I start going to church, doing something religious like that, the pain will stop. Maybe if I just start doing religious kind of stuff, pressing the right kind of buttons. So the one temptation we face in trials is to believe that we're being punished in them. The second is to become cynical and say that life is pretty random. Now, to a religious person, suffering is a punishment. But to a cynic, and it wouldn't surprise me if you're cynical, suffering is part of the randomness of life. To a religious person, they're tempted to believe if something good is happening, I must be doing something good. If something bad is happening, I must be doing something bad. But to a cynic, when bad things are happening, a person suffers from a disease, a person is dealing with a car accident, a tsunami wipes out a village, a tornado rips through a town. This goes to prove there is no God. The cynic believes that trials shouldn't happen in this world. It isn't right, a cynic argues, that good people should suffer. So if there is a God of love, why does he allow suffering? If God is all-powerful, why doesn't he do something? This proves there is no God. The temptation to a cynic in the face of suffering, especially personal suffering, is to say this proves there is no God. I prefer, the cynic would say, to believe that life is random, that life is more of a crapshoot. The third, and this is a textual one, verse 13, is to begin to blame God. When tempted, no one should say that God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. It isn't a sin to be tempted. It's a sin to yield to temptation. The Spirit is continually warning us of temptations. To resist temptation, we need to hear the Spirit's prompting. We know there's a battle between the flesh and the Spirit, and we yield to the Spirit, and we say no to the temptation. Now, this is what I've found to be true. I eat far less ice cream when there isn't ice cream in the freezer. And I don't drink much alcohol at all if I don't sit at the bar. And I don't eat too much food if I don't go to the buffet. But if I put ice cream in my freezer, if I sit at the bar and the bartender and I get on a first-name basis, if I, little joke, um, if I go to the buffet bar, I'm easily succumbing to temptation. See, I get tempted when I get hungry. And I get tempted when I get lonely. And I get tempted when I'm tired. If I'm hungry, it's a legitimate desire, right? I need to satisfy that desire. If I'm lonely, craving people, I need to satisfy that desire. If I'm tired, I need to get some sleep. You see, you can't satisfy an emotional need of something physical. Let's say I'm stressed. Solve it by just 
eating food. So I can't say if I'm tempted, I can't say that God is tempting me. I can't say that I'm overweight because Debbie is such a fantastic cook. You've heard that, haven't you? I wouldn't weigh so much if you weren't such a great cook. Kind of reminds me of Adam in the garden. You know, Adam, what have you done? Well, the wife you gave me, God. You know, Adam took it like a man and blamed his wife. So this blaming thing started really early in the garden. Temptation will take you down. Temptation will take you out. Temptation, if yielded to, will discourage your faith. You as a believer have power. You have an arsenal to fight temptation with. You have the power of the Word of God. You have the power of prayer. You have the power of true community standing with you in your temptation. And each one of us is going to battle against temptation. But each one of us is tempted when by our evil desires they're dragged away and enticed. Dragged away here is referring to a trap being set for an animal. Enticed is referring to bait on a hook. Now, no fisherman just puts a hook in the water, right? You always put bait on the hook. Um, this last year, I don't mean to brag, but I caught seven groundhogs in my backyard with my have a heart trap. And none of the groundhogs went into the trap, you know, without bait. There was peanut butter there and apples. And so here comes the groundhogs, and now the relocation program began. <laughs> so I had to bait the groundhogs in order to be trapped. A fisherman needs to bait the hook in order to catch the fish. You see, all temptation is common to all mankind. But God is faithful. And he'll always provide for you the way of escape. So it's natural and normal for you to thirst, to hunger, to want to sleep, to want to work and produce, to give gifts away, to organize. So what is a temptation? A temptation works through a desire. The desire becomes disordered. So a legitimate desire becomes satisfied wrongfully. It's legit to thirst. But can you think of any way illegitimately to satisfy your thirst? It's legitimate to hunger. But can you think of any way illegitimately to either starve yourself or to overeat into gluttony? It's legitimate to sleep. It's a temptation to become lazy. It's legitimate to work and produce, but it's illegitimate to work too much or work too little. See, what he's saying is that we will face temptations in this life. The fourth temptation is, when our faith is being tested, is to underestimate the power of desire. So let's imagine for this morning, if you can just take your mind there, that we've left church and now we've gone to a pastry shop. Now, we're looking on the outside, we're looking in the pastry shop at the glass case, right? And we see there in the, in the glass case, um, something that looks quite delicious. We have a desire 
to be satisfied, a hunger, if you will. We think that the cake with the icing will satisfy the desire. We look at the appearance of the temptation. It seems to us so inviting, so appetizing. It seems like we deserve some pleasure. We convince ourselves to take the plunge. We even justify our action. It won't hurt. Nobody will ever know. So our big problem when it comes into temptation is we underestimate the power of desire. We get dragged away and enticed. You see, sin has conception, according to James, and then a birth, and becomes full-grown, and it leads us to death. He's describing here being drug away into a trap, being enticed by bait on a hook. So what is your temptation? There's four truths you need to hold on to. Look with me at verse 16 and following. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He gave us, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. So here's four truths I want you to hold on to when you are tempted. The first is that every good and perfect gift comes down from God. In the beginning, everything was good. God in his goodness made everything good. And then evil came into our world when man believed that God was withholding something good from him. The lie was there was something good in the forbidden fruit. But Jesus Christ has come to restore us, to redeem us, to show us the goodness of God. You see, God gives to his children good gifts. This last week on Leap Day, we received a good gift. We have a, another grandchild, little Rowan Grace, Alabama. When Aaron was singing that song, you know, Sweet Home Alabama, I was thinking about Rowan being born into a sweet home this week. We receive the gift of the precious Word of God. That's a gift that God's given to us. The gift of someone explaining to us what this Word means. The gift of community. Right? The gift of health. The gift of a physician to take care of us. The gift of medicine to take. You see, our Father gives good gifts to His children. Our Father is good. And secondly, God does not change like the shifting shadows. The neighborhood may change, the culture may change, the times are certainly changing, but God does not change. He is, the big word is immutable, changeless. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, always giving good gifts to his children. He's a good, good father, isn't he? Giving good gifts to his children. He isn't good today and tomorrow, he'll stop being good. God loves to give good gifts to his children and pour out his blessings upon us. And third, God has chosen to give us the greatest gift of all, the birth, the new birth, through the word of truth. In order to get saved, God had to cause something to happen. It says he chose to give us birth 
Now, we didn't have life. Ephesians says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We used to follow after the ways of this world. We had a spirit of disobedience. We gratified the cravings of our sinful nature. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, God made us to come alive. It's like we as believers have been awakened from our sleep. It's as if God has raised us back to life from spiritual death. Well, how does this happen? He chose to give us birth through the word of truth. The word of truth is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Somewhere in your journey, you heard the gospel of God's grace, and you were born again, not on the basis of what you had done, but what Jesus had done for you. You believed, and you were born again. Why? That you may bear fruit for God, be the first fruit of the harvest. You see, what James is really getting at in this epistle is that of what genuine faith really looks like. And he's saying you were born of genuine seed. The seed was planted in you to bear fruit for God. The Scripture tells us then that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we may be saved. Now, I'm not trying to denigrate other religions. I know some Muslims and Buddhists who are very sincere in the practice of their religion. But I am saying to you, you can't be saved in the name of Allah. You can't be saved by being a good Buddhist. There is only one path to the Father's house. There is only one door that lets you in. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that no man comes to the Father but by me. If you're going to get into the Father's house, I know what gets you through the door. His name is Jesus Christ. Faith, a living faith in him, believing in Jesus. That is the path to salvation. Amen. You see, all the other religions of the world will teach you that you obey their teachings then you get to be, find the favor of God, the love of God, right? But Christianity teaches that God, first of all, shows us his love through the cross. And we believe we're loved and affirmed and then have a desire to please God, we obey him. Well, he wants to make six actions in our life to bear fruit. These pick up in verses 19 and following. So here we go. First of them is that everyone should be quick to listen. <laughs> huh. You ever been in a conversation with somebody and you just couldn't wait till they finished so you could get your, you know, so you could talk, get your two cents in? You have your talking points, right? And you aren't listening to what the other person is saying. So you're waiting for them to take a breath. We need to learn to listen to someone to understand versus be in the conversation to be understood. 
I need to understand where you're coming from. I need to know what you are thinking. I need to know how you are feeling. I need to listen to you because you matter to me. I hear, I'm with couples, you know, talking to them. And I always want them to talk to each other. Just talk to each other. Just, the better it gets, you just talk. Get it out, you know. What's going on in your life, you know. How are you feeling about all that? And he says to me something like, you know, Pastor, her voice to me is very annoying. She's just always badgering me, always bossing me around, always nagging me. It's getting worse now, right? And then she says, well, he's just so defensive. Like, he's always blaming me, always justifying himself, you know, just tuning out, going down to his man cave. So I see this problem in communication with couples of not listening to each other, of creating walls around themselves, sort of an impasse. And I see then parents, I see parents not talking to their kids. I see parents talking at their children. Worse, I see parents talking about their children, not in positive ways. James wants to be very direct to us and say, in order to bear fruit in your Christian life, to be a sincere believer, you're going to have to, first of all, be quick to listen. Listen to the Word of God. Listen to one another. Listen non-defensively to each other. Listen to what's really going on. And secondly, everyone should be slow to speak. Oh. You ever spoken and regretted what you said? He's speaking here about self-restraint, about being slow to speak. The more people speak, the more sin is present, Proverbs says. Don't be afraid of silence. <laughs> um, <laughs> at my house, I have a very talkative wife. And one of the things I'm trying to impose is an 11 o'clock curfew on talking. I say, darling, can we just kind of shut it down? It's 11 o'clock now. Like, she wants to tell me something else. Like, <laughs> so I say, don't be afraid of silence. God does some of his greatest work when we just restrain ourselves. Now, also, when you're speaking, right, be slow to speak, be slow to try to fix people. One of the things in our groups we try to establish, and I'm glad 68% of you guys are part of groups now is, we don't try to rescue people with our words. We don't try to fix them. Be slow to speak. Then he says the third action to take to bear fruit is be slow to get angry. See there in verse 19? Be slow to get angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Hmm. We talked earlier about the nature of God. I said that the nature of God is loving, right? But I want to say the nature of God here is slow to anger. It isn't no anger. God gets angry. And it isn't blow up anger. God doesn't explode. But the nature of our God is he is slow to get angry. Hmm. 
God wants us to learn how to be angry about injustice, wrong, and not sin. Because we can sin against ourselves by holding in all of that anger, or we can sin against others by ripping the cord, tossing the grenade, and exploding things. I know of a guy, he has a purple heart. He has shrapnel in his body still. I know of people who've been in the pathway of grenades being tossed who still have shrapnel in their bodies. You say, where is this anger coming from? What is the root of the anger? I don't know. I really don't. But I would say that the roots for all of us has something to do with hurt and pain and loss in our lives. Some of you here have shrapnel because your dad would get angry and pull the cord and toss the hand grenade and people got hurt. Now something sets you off, it builds up inside of you. Not every day do you explode, but it's like one thing after another, someone pushing your buttons, someone pushing your buttons, someone wasting your time, and you rip the cord and you toss the hand grenade, and you explode. We tend to blame it on our birth, don't we? On the family into which we were born, not fully appropriating what it means to be born again. What does it mean in your life to be slow to anger? It means you don't have to be angry as a state of being, You don't have to stay angry. You don't have to have explosionary episodes. You don't have to write nasty grams. You don't have to have road rage. You can get control over your anger. There is a path of freedom for you. You can get at the root of your anger underneath what it is. And you can't say, She makes me so mad. Because no one has the capacity to make you mad, right? If you get mad, you've chosen to be mad, right? You've responded in anger to what is happening around you. You see, I can operate in my flesh. Or I can take a breath and ask the Spirit for wisdom for self-restraint, maybe to walk away for a little while, get perspective about this. You see, if it's all about me, when you finish talking, I just can't wait to straighten you out. (laughs) But if it's all about Jesus, when you talk, I'm really listening to you. I really want to hear what you have to say. I want to be quick to listen and slow to get angry because I want to manifest Jesus to you. And then he says in verse 21, I want you to do something really specific. Get rid of all that moral filth and evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. To step into the righteous life that God desires for you you're going to have to get rid of something. You've got to take off something. I'm calling it here the old shirt. 
The old shirt may be how you learned to deal with anger growing up. You may have learned to stuff it and pretend as if you're not angry. Angry is an emotion, right? Energy in motion. Or you may have learned to pull the ripcord and toss the hand grenade and let the shrapnel fly. I mean, you didn't plan to get angry. You just, just exploded. Couldn't help yourself. I want to tell you that all of us have intergenerational patterns that have been passed down to us. We have learned how to deal with life, but those patterns can be broken in the person of Jesus Christ. He has the power to save you. But there is, first of all, an action you must take. You must get rid of it. I'll say it this way. The epistles will say, take off the old life, right? Put off the old man. Be made new in the attitude of your mind and put on a brand new life. The change becomes when we are obedient to God, taking off the former pattern, letting our minds be renewed in a new attitude of life and putting on the new shirt. That's how we begin to bear fruit for God. Humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. And then to verse 22, it says, And do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. I love this part. Do what the word is telling you to do. Many feel, especially living here in America, that the essence of their faith is to basically come to a place like this and listen. You know, we'll pack the sermons full of truth. A person hears the truth, even agrees with the truth, but never does anything with the truth. <laughs> I like to say that Americans are educated beyond our level of obedience. We listen, we agree, we say, that was good. Then we go, time to go. <laughs> I've, uh, I've listened in my lifetime now to a lot of teachers. And often I'll say to one, you know, I really appreciate what you had to say. I remember one guy said, and what are you going to do with it? How are you going to live this out? The word here for listen is the same as the word audit. There's a big difference between taking a class for real, for credit, and taking an audit. When you audit a class, right, you show up when you want, you can choose not to do the work, and you can skip the test. What Jesus is saying is, or James is saying is, don't be the guy who only audits the class, who only listens. Be the person who humbly receives the word, who does what the word says to do. The person who doesn't, who just listens to the word, who doesn't do what it says, is like the man who looks in the mirror. I've wondered if James, in that day, if we'd had real mirrors like glass mirrors, he would have said, like, the woman who looks in the mirror really looks at herself. But he says here, the man who looks at himself in the mirror. He looks at the image of himself, he sees himself as he is, but he goes away and forgets what he looks like. You know, I was at this funeral not too long ago of Patrick Schaefer. And Patrick's wife was testifying that she never really felt in her life very beautiful. When she looked into the mirror, she never felt like she was very pretty. 
But Patrick always said to her, you know, you're really beautiful. And the day after he died, she looked into the mirror and she saw puffy eyes, dark circles under her eyes. And what she said was, I felt beautiful. She began to see what her husband saw in her, in her mirror. You see, they were looking into mirrors then. They didn't have glass mirrors. The mirrors were made out of copper and tin. Polished up, they came bronze-like. People couldn't have seen themselves exactly as they were. But when we go before the Word of God, and it begins to show us as we are, it's as, as, as it were, we're looking into the mirror, and God is showing us who He is and who we are so as to make changes in us, you see? We can overestimate ourselves looking in the mirror. That becomes pride. We can underestimate ourselves. That becomes false humility. But he concludes this by saying, in verse 25, but the man, the woman, who looks intently, gazes hard into the perfect law, the laws of God, into the gospel, that gives freedom. The pathway for you here is the pathway to freedom and continues to do this. Doesn't look just once or twice, but he gazes, he meditates, he reflects on the word. He begins to see what God is saying to him, what God is saying to her, and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it. The promise, right? You see? He will be blessed in what he does. What God wants to do to us is release blessing for us to find freedom, for us to change patterns, for us to be transformed. But it begins with us with doing what he says to do. Right? So let's back up and invite the praise team to come on. James begins to take on temptations. He's saying that in this life you're going to face temptations. And some of you are really being tested now. Your faith is under trial. You're facing a temptation. Temptations are common to all of us. Right? Temptation to become religious, God's punishing me. Temptation to become cynical, life is just random. Temptation to shift the blame to someone else. The temptation to underestimate the power of desire. But here's something I want you to hold on to. You were birthed into God's kingdom. Our God is a giver of every perf perfect gift. And he so wants us to be slow to speak and quick to listen and slow to get angry. He so wants us to receive this word which has the power to save us and to do what God is asking us to do. Anybody here feel like you need God? That's what this next song is all about. Pray with me, would you please? Father, as we listen to the book of James, your spirit is speaking to us, and we really want to listen to what you have to say. Because, God, we want our faith to be sincere, not pretend. We want it to be real. And some of us are undergoing a real test right now and real temptation. Something is luring us and drawing us, but we're hearing your voice speak to us also. 
So God, would you give us the grace to follow you and to persevere? Wherein, Lord, Lord, you want to make change. May you find us to be good soil into which your seed can be planted to bear fruit. Teach us, Lord, to be slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to get angry. Father, give us grace. Help us to walk this out. God, we need you. We really need you, God. Would you help us? Would you strengthen us? Would you be our refuge? God, could we come to you this morning and cry out to you? Father, maybe there's somebody else on our heart this morning who's going through a serious test, a trial, a temptation. Father, could we lift them up? Could we connect with each other in our small groups, undergirding each other with prayers for the trials and difficulties we're facing? God, help us to connect. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The place to come and pray, if you want to come and pray, we'll pray with you. Would you stand with us and sing our last song? Lord, I need you.